welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast. This week, coming to you live from Newcastle! My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that Harry Houdini's dog was a professional escape artist. (laughs) (laughs) Did they call him Harry Houdini? Brilliant. Oh, very nice. They should have. No, they called him Uh. Bobby. And... (laughs) Bobby was Harry Houdini's dog, a.k.a. the only handcuffed king dog in the world. And Bobby headlined the 14th Annual Society of American Magicians Dinner. This is an annual thing that they had. Harry Houdini was the president at the time. And he taught Bobby to be an escape artist, so he made him little tiny handcuffs that would go around his wrist. Imagine if you were the second on the bill to that dog. You've been invited to the Society of American Magicians. This is your big chance. And you have to warm up for a fight. Fucking dark. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so it's funny. But you could do, I mean, it wasn't just the handcuffs. He also had a little tiny straight jacket that was made for him <laughs> that he could escape from. Um, it, it sounds like an incredible act. Uh, apparently, I mean, according to Houdini, he said he was a dog gone hit. From the, uh, from the evening. Yeah, he wasn't known for his jokes. Come on, don't give him, don't give him shit for he that. He did that and he didn't go for Houndini? Come on. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, yeah, so he loved pets generally. He had a lot of pets. He had a talking parrot called Laura. He had a pet turtle <laughs> called Petey. Uh, he had an American eagle called Abraham Lincoln. What? And my favorite one is that he had, he's a, he had a lot of parrots. He had one called Pat Houdini, and he taught this parrot how to pick locks. And Pat, after Houdini died, according to the story, Bess, his wife, uh, was living in the house with Pat. Pat picked his own lock, got out of the cage, and flew away. That's amazing. Really? Never seen disappeared. Again. Wasn't it because of Bess that Bobby came to them in the first place? She bought Bobby from a butcher when the butcher, it was the butcher's pet and the butcher wouldn't let her give it a bone. And so I guess she thought, I really want to give this dog a bone, desperately. <laughs> I'm going to buy it so I can. Yeah. Is that true? It's that's, sli- that's, that's the story. It's a slightly confusing story, but yeah. <laughs> dogs, magical dogs, just while we're on the, them, yeah. there are so many magical dogs. Have you heard of Oscar the Hypno Dog? No. no. Oscar the Hypno Dog was a recent performing dog. He played from 1989 to 2001. And then he had to retire for, you know, health reasons. Apparently his owner said he could no longer hold the penetrating stare necessary for stage hypnosis. Ah. Basically, he had these, I think it was a chocolate Labrador, and he had these incredibly melting brown eyes, beautiful. And the story was that anyone who looked at Oscar the Hypnodog's eyes will fall into a deep trance. Okay. And he went missing at the Edinburgh Fringe in 1995, and they put up posters all over the place saying, Oscar is missing, be very careful. <laughs> do, not, do not look into his <laughs> that was the Edinburgh Fringe that they put that up. He, he performed, Oscar performed all over, and his uh, can own... you imagine a worse time in the world to put up missing posters than at the Edinburgh Fringe? <laughs> <laughs> 
Can you take one of these? No, thank you. I'm all right. Can you take one of these? But he was just allowed to wander around the audience, Oscar. And there is a, this, his owner was the hypnotist, obviously. His owner was called Hugh Lennon and was a brilliant hypnotist. But there is an account that Oscar was just free to walk around the aisles of the theatre in the interval and things like that. And he saw a man eating some crisps and being a dog, obviously, he wants some crisps. So he just yeah. sat and stared at the man hoping for some crisps. And then the man crumpled over in his chair in a deep catatonic hypnotic trance. Wow. <laughs> cool. Crumpled like his very crisp packet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of dogs doing cool tricks goes back such a long way. It seems like as soon as we decided, man decided to befriend the dog, we started making them do weird stuff. It was really like the 14th century, the Middle East in the 14th century, in the marketplace, there'd be merchants who trained their dogs to put on proper plays and stuff, dramatic performances, <laughs> and they'd dress them up and they'd act out parts. Uh, I read a thing that in the 6th century, so, you know, 1,500 years ago, there was a Byzantine chronicler who said there was a showman who his show was bringing his dog to the marketplace and the dog would collect rings from audience members. I guess you, you handed over your wedding ring or whatever and cross your fingers and then he'd bury them and then he'd have the dog <laughs> dig up all the rings and return them to the correct person. Oh, wow. 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 Impressive. Uh, in 1670, Philip, the Duke of Orléans in Paris, uh, he possessed a dog who knew how to sort books alphabetically by author. Cool. Apparently. <laughs> so what do you think there is to the level of truth that these dogs were, I don't think psychically, but were learning okay, to do well, with Okay, well, here's one. Here's a famous one that we do know how they did it. Yeah. So there was a famous dog genius in the 1820s called Monito, uh, and they basically, they could spell, they could play cards, they could play dominoes, they could do maths. Like, they, with the maths, it would be, what's two plus three? Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? Is it four? Is it five? And when you said five, he would go rrr, 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 like that. Yeah. And the way that we know that he was doing it is his instructor would have in his pocket a tiny little toothpick and he would just pring, pling the little toothpick, go bling, bling, bling. Oh. No one in the audience could hear it, but the dog could hear ah. it. And as soon as he heard it, he knew he would have to bark. Clever. That's very clever. Yeah. There is another thing where people think that dogs are doing this and they're actually not, but the dogs are picking up on signals that the humans don't realise they're giving off. Yeah. So there was a thing, the Hundsplechschule Azra, which is also known as the Nazi talking dog programme. Mm. Um, <laughs> Which John Bonderson, uh, you know, friend of the show, friend has, of the show. has written about before. He wrote a book called Amazing Dogs, and they were convinced that dogs could be taught to to count or, or talk quite well. And, um, and what were the Nazis going to do with this information? I don't know. <laughs> it's such a good question. Well, because, like, the British supposedly, you know, lovers of dogs, you know, famously, maybe they were going to turn them against their owners. That's absolutely yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were lots of headlines. Things like, um, heel Hitler, or <laughs> the Third Reich, Huh? And um, John Bod nine, nine, yes. <laughs> yeah, anyway, they didn't have a. He, John Bonnison clarified that the Nazis did not have a legion of talking machine gun toting hounds. So the, the program was a <laughs> there bust. is famously. I can't remember all of this, but there's famously a Nazi monument in London. I think there's one. Right. And it was a Nazi oh. dog. And the oh. dog died in London. It was like the German ambassador's dog. And they give a proper Nazi funeral and they put a little kind of thing up. And that's the only Nazi memorial in the whole of London. Wow. wow. And it's still really? there. It's still there, yeah. That's a bit weird. Well, I suppose the dog's <laughs> are, you, are you proposing? Are you proposing we tear it down? <laughs> Maybe you're proposing we get a few more. <laughs> well, I'm just surprised in the big moment of all the statues going down that no one went, can we just lob this one in? <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. The dog 
dog didn't know what it was doing in its yeah. defence. And Fair Cecil enough. Rhodes did, is all I'm saying. <laughs> Fair enough. Do you know the movie Air Bud? It's a movie about a dog that becomes a basketball sensation um, <laughs> because it... It can play basketball. It's a, it's a kid's film. True story? Or? It's, it's based on, yeah. Based on, kind of, because it turned out that Bud, the dog that was hired for the movie, yeah. it wasn't CGI. Bud could play basketball. <laughs> this was a stray golden retriever that in 1989 was found roaming the mountains of Yosemite. And the person who found him, and I called him Buddy, uh, he trained him in a lot of different sports. So he trained him how to catch a baseball pitch. I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> he then set up a hockey net and he showed him how to block shots coming into the net. But then he taught him how to shoot basketball. And he went on the David Letterman show and he displayed it and how he did it. And he became quite a national star. I would star. like to have seen him do pole vault. Yeah, he might have done. Uh, but so, but there was no CGI use. He was playing real basketball. He was oh, shooting amazing. hoops. Yeah. And was it, you know, was LeBron James frightened for his career, or yeah. how could we talk about LeBron James more like? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, you're going to have to get on board. <laughs> you knew what you were coming to. <laughs> you bought the tickets. I just, I just got one more thing on, on sort of the risk to performing dogs now. Yes. Because now people are, you know, motion capture is really good. So there is a film called The Call of the Wild based on a book by Jack London yep. out last year or the year before. Stars Harrison Ford and it's about this man and his dog best friend. And they didn't use a dog for it. They used a guy called Terry who just wore a motion capture suit. <laughs> what? Terry Notary is his name. And um, he just would go around on all fours for the whole film pretending to be a dog, and then they CGI'd the whole thing. Oh, wow. And oh it, there's a scene where they're lying together, you know, like the dog is in Harrison Ford's lap, and <laughs> it's very moving. And it's just a guy called Terry. And the, <laughs> the production photos are unbelievable. <laughs> and, it, and Terry, he's, like, he's, he's a serious motion capture dude. Like, he's an Andy Serkis-style guy. Um, so he said it was about trying to be present for Ford and let him forget, really forget that I was a human and be a dog and dissolve into it. Harrison Ford said, Terry Notary does a great tennis ball. Wow. <laughs> is there a scene in the movie, and I really hope there is, where the dog takes a poo on the grass? Because... <laughs> <laughs> and then Harrison Ford has to pick up Terry's poo. <laughs> You can see in his face that he's not happy in that scene. He's putting the bag around. Oh, fuck! Terry! Um, listen, we need to move on to our next fact. It is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that in the First World War, MI5 employed 90 girl guides. They tried Boy Scouts at first, but found they couldn't be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So what did they employ them to do? Well, lots of stuff. So this was um, Girl Guides, aged 14 to 16, and it was very shortly after the Girl Guides had been founded, and they were paid 10 shillings a week, they were nine-hour days, and they um, were asked to sort of carry messages between floors, to carry messages across town, and they had to swear an oath that they would never open the messages and read what was inside them. And, yeah, they tried it with boys first, with the Boy Scouts, and they would found they were too boisterous and too mischievous. Not what um, you want in a spy. Um, it's, really, it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Newly formed girl guides going around the, the MI5 HQ. They were a company, you know, because you get companies of girl guides. They were the special MI5 guide company, and they got quite seriously involved with the war, you know, like back of house capacity. But they they worked in the <laughs> to begin with. But then it was quite sad at the end, wasn't it? The front lines <laughs> over the top now. 
Do I get a bunch for this? Just throwing brownies at the enemy. Yeah, okay, yeah. Point taken. But they they worked in the postal censorship office, and that was also where they dislodged Boy Scouts from the role that the Boy Scouts had. The poor Boy Scouts, I mean, they clearly had really muffed it. But they also, this is the most amazing thing, the girl guys, they acted as messengers for the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. Sixteen of them were invited to witness wow. the signing of the Treaty wow. of Versailles. The leaders of Europe and sixteen girl guides were there. <laughs> I just think that's incredible. But yeah, they were they were very cool. And but I think they were a little bit goody two shoesy, shockingly enough, um, girl guides as they were. There was an MI5 employee who said they used to sort of be always lurking in corners, but being useful, but you know, just sort of always there. You can imagine what's this 14-year-old girl doing in my office? <laughs> <laughs> well, they had to always wear their outfits, didn't they? Like yeah. they had to wear wear their hats and they had to wear their they had to, their the skirt was not allowed to be more than eight inches off the ground yeah. and so they dressed in that you wouldn't just see a random 14 year old girl you would know, <laughs> you'd know. They were, yeah. you'd know. Uh, but apparently in their breaks uh, this mi5 employee said the girl guide retires to her attractive little sitting room where she converses on high topics with her friends oh yeah. no, so sweet so sweet <laughs> they were quite controversial when they first came about Girl guides, girl scouts. Were they? Yeah, they were. So initially it was just thought to be a boys thing and Baden Powell had set up the Boy Scouts and there were a few moments where, particularly in Crystal Palace in London, where a bunch of Boy Scouts got together, thousands, in order to just do a big display and say we're here. And completely unsanctioned, these girls came along dressed up in the... The, the using, Boy Scout costume at the time, because there were yeah, no Girl so, Scouts. Yeah, and, and declared themselves to be Girl Scouts. And yeah. Baden-Powell suddenly was like, hang on a second, this might be a thing. He just assumed, because any time that they were trying to do it, the reviews, they got reviews, were bad. They were saying, uh, <laughs> there were complaints saying that there were mannish girls and girls not being peaceful if they were in a uniform. They were worried that it was going to yeah, start yeah. this whole new different thing. And so they were really against it. And the girls yeah. said, no, screw you, Yeah, they are very, very plucky. It was led by a team of, I think, six or seven girls. And this was a huge march. It was the first Boy Scouts march, 1909. The Boy Scouts had just been founded. 11,000 boys. And these apparently 2,000 girls also turned up and led by these six or seven girls who just decided we want to get involved with this and pretty much went up to Baden-Powell. He went up to them and said we want it. And to his credit, Baden-Powell was always really pro. He wrote a lot of stuff even before this saying how, you know, girls can be just as brave as boys over and again they've proved it it's just not part of their education and within about a week 6,000 girl guides had registered didn't they well he thought at first he might just let the girls into the boy scouts and it would just be the scouts Um, but then in the end he decided they would do the girl guides instead one of the reasons that they did that is because he was always worried about something that he called girlitis and that was whenever his Boy Scouts got to a certain age, they started not being very interested in setting fires. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Wow. It's illegitimate concern. Yes, Let's fair. face it's it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, uh, the, gosh. Is it, yeah. So... Memories. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, I said, I said it. All right. Um, can I, why are you why? drooling? Stop drooling. I'm not drooling. Put that woggle away. <laughs> Can I tell you one more thing about girl guides yes, in please. war? Yeah. Uh, First World War specifically, this one. They were b- very uh, helpful in both World Wars, actually, the, gu- the girl guides. And uh, one of the things they did, along with the Boys Brigade, Scottish organisation, and the Boy Scouts, the girl guides did a lot of... Con- 
collecting of sphagnum moss during no, the First Jesus. World War. Christ and almighty. it's very interesting. Um, it was used for wound dressing, as I think we may have mentioned once or twice on this podcast before. And they were the ones out there in the peat bogs picking out the moss, collecting it, so it could be used to dress wounds. And there was even a poem about it. What good news. Uh, by, we don't have time for that, I don't do. think. We do, and we will. <laughs> Mrs. A.M. Smith of the Edinburgh War Dressing Supply Organisation wrote this very brief poem, all right? The doctors and the nurses look north with eager eyes and call on us to send them the dressing that they prize. No other is its equal. In modest bulk it goes until it meets the gaping wound where the red lifeblood flows. Then spreading, swelling in its might, it checks the fatal loss and kills the germ and heals the hurt, the kindly sphagnum moss. <laughs> what a poem! What a poem! Oh, dear. <laughs> Pretty good. Um, there was a concern... So it was controversial when they were formed and, you know, lots of pushback. And one of the reason, other reasons that they were separated is because it was thought that Boy Scouts wouldn't like the idea that girls were joining in their games and it made them kind of effeminate and silly. Um, and someone wrote to Baden-Powell very shortly after they were formed saying they thought it was ridiculous, this idea that you could have Girl Scouts, given that girls aren't even allowed to run, hurry, swim, ride a bike or raise their arms above their head. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Very strict what parenting that that man was involved Hurry, in. you're not allowed to hurry. You weren't allowed to hurry as a girl, apparently, <laughs> in 1909. Yeah, whereas your you couldn't put your hand up in class. That's why they you didn't do as well in education. Couldn't do the YMCA. No, no. couldn't do the Mobot. Although that wouldn't become a problem for another hundred years, so it's probably fine. Yeah. Person- I don't think the YMCA dance is much of an issue in 1909 either. <laughs> well, another dance actually got them into trouble. They always seem to, like, when you read in the news, it always seems that Girl Scouts are somehow involved in some weird controversy. So, 1996, the American Society of Composers, Authors and Publishers threatened to sue them over royalties for songs that members would sing during campfires. So they said to them, you're not allowed to sing our songs unless you're paying a royalty. And the idea was, yeah, groups would have to pay $250 for public performances for the rights to songs that they wanted to sing. But what were they? They must have been singing pop songs then, right? Yeah, it was pop songs and so on. So God, what did, was it the Rolling Stones who were complaining? Is it the Paul McCartney? It, who was, was... it was the publishing companies. And so there were cautions. There were copyright infringement penalties that they said. They said, well, we'll charge you 100000 or you'll get a year in prison. Like, they were really strict things. <laughs> and it was a dance that stopped all of this nonsense happening because footage was shown of them on TV dancing the Macarena with no music and there was such a backlash from the public going don't make Girl Scouts dance the Macarena without the fucking song and <laughs> at least with the Macarena you never have to put your hands above your head do that's you? Right. That's exactly ears only yeah, yeah ears yeah. only um, one thing that neither boy Scouts nor girl guides were allowed to do in official literature was masturbate. They were given official. What? Books. They're not allowed to do it in literature. No, sorry. <laughs> they're, they're, full stop. In or out of literature. Oh. The, the, the girl guides guidebook said, uh, "Don't masturbate. It can lead to blindness, paralysis, and loss of memory." Sorry, did it? They, it said in the guidebook. Then, yeah. Really? 
Exactly. Well, really? it, it, I don't think it said. I don't think it said the word masturbate, but I think it was right. clear what the implication. Because it was a lot of it was ah. taken from the Boy Scouts guidebook. It was pretty much copied directly over. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah, I know. I don't recall ever seeing a no masturbation badge on a uh, scout. <laughs> Have you not? No. Oh. Is well, that a thing? You're not trying hard enough to earn it then. Um, <laughs> there, there was advice actually. Like, the the Girl Guides guidebook is is funny. Reading it now, you know. So here's a great bit of advice from it. It is said that you can tell a man's character from the way he wears his hat. If it is slightly on one side, the wearer is good-natured. If it is worn very much on one side, he is a swaggerer. If on the back of the head, he is bad at paying his debts. If worn straight on top, he is probably honest, but very dull. (laughs) Um, We need to move on to our next fact. It is time for fact number three, and that is... Andy. My fact is that there is a fictional Victorian detective who was created to be the opposite of Sherlock Holmes. In the only recent adaptation of the stories, the detective in question was played by Benedict Cumberbatch. (laughs) Uh, This is the fictional detective Thorpe Hazel, and these are the Thorpe Hazel mysteries by an author called Victor Lorenzo Whitechurch. And basically, he is a railway-based detective. He only solves crimes... That involve the railways, and he only yeah. solves them through the medium of railway timetables. <laughs> <laughs> he's incredible. That's awesome. He's awesome. He's, um, a, he's a vegetarian railway he detective. Certainly is. That's very important he in is. the description. Yeah, and I'm very proud to say I have a copy here of Stories of the Railway by Victor Lorenzo Whitechurch. The Thorpe Hazel Mysteries are in here. Wow. And I just want to read you a brief poem about Moss from (laughs) that book. Um, No, it's basically, he's a book collector and a railway enthusiast, and it's always his knowledge of train timetables that saves the day. (laughs) So if you want to get away with something, just don't commit the crime on the railway. Just drag the victim 100 yards from (laughs) the train track. Well, that's the problem. That's where Sherlock Holmes gets you, right? If, yeah. you, if you do something on the railway, this guy gets you. Everywhere else is Sherlock Holmes. It's, they divided oh, up wow. the turf. Yeah. Is it like having your own spots of the city, you know, with, like, drug dealers? Like, this guy's fucked off when Poirot has the Orient Express crime <laughs> yeah. going on. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's really charming. And the author was also a railway nut, obviously, yeah. Victor Whitechurch, and he, um, he was a, a vicar and basically loved railways as well. And so there were loads of vicars who did, were very productive around this time, maybe because they had cut down the requirement to deliver a two-hour our sermon on Sundays. <laughs> Suddenly all these vicars had time on their hands. Well, the other thing about this guy, Victor Whitechurch, mm. is he was a vicar in charge of the mission church at Williston Junction Railway Station. Uh, so he was well into his trains. Yeah. Right. I really like the way that he wrote his stories. So, like, most people would kind of, like, think of the end of the story and then work backwards. He would get his characters, come up with a murder describe the whole murder, and then go, right, from here, I'm going to work out what happens. Oh. And he would solve the made-up murder in his head as he went along. Right. Oh, that's really cool, isn't You're sort of reading the murder mystery as well as writing it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Great. Were they big at the time? As in, were they... These stories? Yeah, to, to the level of uh, Conan Doyle's... They were not as no. big as... Other. We, we would have heard more about Thorpe Hazel, yeah. the railway <laughs> detective. The, the, the book was originally... Uh, the book I've got is called Stories of the Railway. It was originally called Thrilling Stories of the Railway, and at some point, some editor just decided we can't sell these as thrilling stories of the railway. They just don't back it up. It's false advertising. It's I'm really sorry. Like... <laughs> he 
was the veggie thing was interesting that he made him vegetarian and um, not only vegetarian but very fatty so we've talked before a bit about how the turn of the 20th century vegetarianism started to be a bit of a thing in one of the stories he asked for directions to a vegetarian restaurant which is like the proper early days of vegetarian restaurants and then he goes there and he lunches on rice pudding and prunes so they weren't <laughs> quite up to the standards that we have today but he was uh, really into phys- this weird physical fads that came with it so in one book White Church writes he carried vegetarianism to an extreme and was continually practicing various exercises of the strangest description much to the bewilderment of those around and so I was reading there's one scene where a friend comes upon him and describes a sort of crime on the railway to him um, and as the friend starts talking Thorpe begins some exercises and as you know he's being spoken to it's like Hazelthorpe smiled and went on whirling his arms around his head I've just read that story have you? it's the story of Peter Crane's cigars and it's not very thrilling but it is <laughs> but it is a story it is a story of the railway yeah and then what happens Anna? Uh, well all I know is that uh, he he mentions a timetable and suddenly Hazelthorpe goes you begin to interest me said Hazel stopping his whirly gigs and beginning to eat his plasmon <laughs> it's oh mostly written God. in a foreign language. Plasma was a kind of biscuit. It's what it is. Is there's a, there's a cigar smuggling operation? We in don't Belgium. have time okay, for this. <laughs> um, I do. I really like sort of um, fictional detectives all this time because lots of people were following Arthur Conan Doyle and trying to come up with like a detective with a gimmick. So there is there was a, a fictional detective called Max Carados. Who I don't know if you guys came across. No. So no. he is blind, but despite that, he is so talented that he can read fine print by touch alone. Wow. Um, he can also fire a pistol at targets accurately because he's, his senses are so good. In one of the books, he can smell when someone is wearing a false moustache. <laughs> That's so cool. It's great. That's really good. It's weird because the person wearing a false moustache doesn't need to be doing it in the first place if the detective's blind. It's <laughs> <laughs> absolutely true. <laughs> they, um, there were lots of rip-offs of Sherlock Holmes um, at the very start. In the first ten years or so, uh, there was a detective called Sherwood Hoax, another Shylock Holmes, <laughs> Herlock Sholmes, Sherlock Gnomes, <laughs> Curlock Combs, and Shamrock Jones. Wow. <laughs> That's so good. Nice. Have you yeah. guys heard of the Detection Club? No. Uh, oh, yeah, it's so cool. Oh, man. No. It's a British uh, club for detective writers. So uh, Victor Whitechurch of um, Thorpe Hazel fame was a member himself. Uh, lots of people were members. Agatha Christie was the president for many years. And it has these sacred rituals that it enacts. It's really exciting. So uh, a procession will enter, if you're jo- joining the club for the first time. A procession will enter, led by a figure wearing a scarlet cloak and carrying Eric the Skull, okay? And you have to swear an oath to join. And then once you join, the president says to you, if you fail to remember your promises and break even one of our unwritten laws, may other writers anticipate your plots. May total strangers sue you for libel. May your pages swarm with misprints and may your sales continually diminish. <laughs> yeah. And, well, wow. and the rules are, they're strict. You know, they're the, really the rules strict. written down in the 20s, I think, early 30s, were um, your detectives shall detect crimes using their wits and not placing reliance on divine revelation, feminine intuition, mumbo-jumbo, jiggery-pokery, coincidence or act of God. And also you can't conceal clues from the reader. But, um, you know, the, the skull that... You you put your hand on it's not Eric they sexed it recently and it's Erica oh yeah 
Wow. Yeah. Um, can I, there's a guy called Ronald Knox, who I love. He's another, he was another clerical detective author, actually. And he wrote these Ten Commandments of Detective Fiction, oh, which yeah. are quite fun. So one of them is, not more than one secret room or passage is allowed per detective story. Um, and also, twin brothers and doubles generally must not appear unless we have been duly prepared for them. Wow. <laughs> anyway, he did this really cool thing, uh, Ronald Knox, as well as being the detective author. 1926, he interrupted all broadcasts on the one radio channel on the BBC, basically to announce that there was a riot in London. It was a spoof. People didn't realise it was a spoof. And it was bloody terrifying. So it contained, he said things like, the crowd has now passed along Whitehall and at the suggestion of Mr Popplebury, Secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theatre Cues, is preparing to demolish the Houses of Parliament with trench mortars. The clock tower has just fallen to the ground along with Big Ben the noise you just heard was the Savoy being blown up (laughs) (laughs) so Theophilus Gooch has been intercepted by the remnants of the crowd and is being roasted alive in Trafalgar Square as I speak and then it was snowing so no one could get the news for days so the the BBC just received thousands of letters saying what's going on oh my god that's so incredible (laughs) so good Um, we're going to have to move on very soon can I I just want to quickly mention there's a thing that we wrote about in the book of the year, which was... Do you remember there's that story that Benedict Cumberbatch, he was in an Uber with his wife, and suddenly he saw a robbery that was happening outside on the road. It was a delivery driver who was being attacked by some four muggers who were trying to get to him. So he hopped out, and he went, and, and sort of tried to stop it, and it, and it worked, and <laughs> they got away. Yeah. <laughs> but so, so he successfully scared away these muggers and, and helped this delivery person. But the thing is, is that this robbery was happening on Marlebone High Street, which is just down the road from Baker Street in London. Can you imagine the robbers as they turned around <laughs> to see Sherlock Holmes... <laughs> right next to where he should be looking around at them. You feel honoured. You'd say thank you. I was just trying to mug a delivery driver. I'm not sure this is a Holmes level crime. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking that like, you know, this guy was all about his railway timetables. Like an Uber driver who would solve crimes would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be really cool. But is it based on the star rating that you have? Yeah. No, how could it be? No. It could be like... Three stars, he drove a bit too fast, but he did solve the murder of my wife, so... (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Just one tiny thing, which... uh, P.D. James, brilliant, 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 brilliant crime author, died only a few years ago. Um, She was once doing a signing, and uh, an Australian woman came to the front of the queue, said her name was Emma Chizit, right? P.D. James signed the book to Emma Chizit, only to realise this Australian woman had been asking how much the book cost. <laughs> oh. Emma Chizit. Emma Chizit. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that Himalayan chewing gum is made out of cheese. Mm. And there it is. Yeah. Looks like sausages a little bit. Or yeah. like ladies' fingers, maybe. Like baguettes. So in um, what sense is it chewing gum? It's chewing gum in the sense that it's called Himalayan chewing gum and that you chew it a lot. 
Yeah. It's the world's hardest cheese uh, that we know of. It's called chirpy. And because it's so, so hard, you put it in your mouth. And if you're like a yak farmer or something, you're just having your daily yak farm. Yeah. Then you put it in your mouth <laughs> and you just chew it and chew it and chew it. And the saliva slowly makes it softer and softer and softer. And it's hours and hours that you chew this um, stuff. And eventually you can eat it. And so that's why they call it chewing gum. It sounds nice, um, but it does sound unbelievably tough. As in, yeah. there was a BBC journalist who tried it. He, he chewed his piece for seven minutes. Seven minutes, didn't leave a scratch on it. Yeah, it's yeah. really wow. hard. I have yeah. had it, but I've, I've not had the hard version. I've had the soft version. Oh, oh geez. Ah. Do they, what, do they <laughs> ease you in on that? <laughs> Basically, this stuff, they've kind of dried it out for ages and ages and ages. I think they put it in like an animal skin or something and dry it out for ages. Oh. Um, but if you have it early on, before they do all that, it's more like cottage cheese, like mm. Georgian cheese. Uh, and it's the national dish of Bhutan. It's called Emma Datsi. Uh, and that's the type that I had. And it's basically really, 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 really hot chilies inside a bowl of this cheese. And it is delicious. It's mm. one of the best things I've ever had. Oh. And they don't usually let foreigners eat it because it's too spicy. That's what they say. Oh, wow. yeah. That's how they flatter every foreigner who walks in. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Most British people can't handle this one. Very impressive. Hey, <laughs> I, it was in Bhutan's Nando's and they put a very nice little flag <laughs> in the top of it. Did it have a lemon and a herb on it is what I want to know. Yeah. Uh, but chirpy as well is sometimes used these days as a dog treat because it's so chewy. Um, ah. you can, I think even in America, I don't know if you can buy it here, but in America you can buy this cheesy dog treat that they can just keep mm. chewing on. Right. I read a very spurious sentence about it, I thought, in one of the articles, which said, since it's rich in protein and fat, it makes a great substitute for vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> No, <laughs> that's why we're eating our greens. Uh, can I tell you about the Fight Club for Cheese? No, yeah. you can't tell us about the Fight Club for Cheese. <laughs> okay. That's the whole point. Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. Um, yeah, it's the Cheesemonger International, which happens in the oh. USA. And it's, uh, this was a, a description in the FT. It involves 50 young cheesemongers pitting their skills against each other in a frenetic battle of curd nerdery. happens <laughs> <laughs> in San Francisco. Cool. It does sound fun, yeah. The charismatic founder, Adam Moskowitz, is called Mr. Moo and compares in a cow onesie. Wow. Okay, a bit less cool now. That's <laughs> cool. <laughs> I wonder who's called him the charismatic founder. It sounds like something on his own website. Yeah. Him and his onesie at the top. Um, you know burrata, the like more delicious version of mozzarella. Yeah. Um, yep. I didn't really know what that was, but it's so it came about as a way of using up leftovers. And the way they did it, this is the 1930s. It's in, in Apulia. It's the only place you can make it. Um, cream would be scraped off the top of milk, um, and it was usually chucked away. And instead, they mixed it with stretched mozzarella curds to make that really creamy, soupy inside. And then they blew mozzarella into a bubble. So they got mozzarella and they blew like a bubble gum bubble and then they stuffed this cream inside and this was just to preserve it. So this meant that when you had like a day's journey to get to market, then this apparently insulated it from the heat of the oh. sun and meant that the cream and cheese didn't go off inside. So oh, when you wow. prod that open... But I just love that they blew into it like a little... 
you know. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Bubble. Li- <laughs> like, like a bubble. Liquid, so made that clear. liquid soupy stuff uh, yeah. from cheese. This is an interesting new innovation that's happening around the world, and I wonder if it's going to take off. In Wisconsin, they've been doing this. So they make a lot of cheese there, and they have a lot of yeah, master yeah. cheese makers there as well. So as a result of having a lot of cheese, they have a lot of excess brine that they need to get rid of. Yeah. And what they do is they liquefy it, and they pour it on the side of the roads during winter in place of salt. Mm. And it works way better than salt uh. does. It's great for them because they're getting rid of a lot of waste and they're using it really efficiently. Does it not make the entire state smell of cheese? It stinks like I, shit, yeah. I, it's, it's, it, I think it's, a lot of Wisconsin smells of cheese already. Yeah. Yeah. I've had some, oh yeah, okay. But, but what's really interesting is, A, it's just a great way of just recycling the materials in a, in a good way, but also this typical salt they would use on roads, that would freeze at six below zero. Whereas cheese doesn't freeze until 21 below zero. So it's actually even just useful in the sense wow. that the colder it gets, it's still useful. But that's why you never get cheese ice cream, tragically, isn't it? Oh, really? It? <laughs> yeah, no. Uh. <laughs> oh, okay. So there was a big story, a big story in Germany last year. Uh, and that was that someone was living above a cheese shop and she was very, very upset because her house smelled of cheese all the time. She said the smell of cheese was coming through her electrical sockets. <laughs> and it went to court because oh, yeah. she said that they should just stop selling cheese all the time. Basically, and she was like putting signs up saying, um, this place stinks of cheese. I was a cheese, <laughs> fucking cheese shop. But she was putting that. He yeah. said that she had been hiding cheese behind a fuse box to frame him. <laughs> Anyway, so they found in favour of the cheese seller, but he's decided, okay, I want to be a good neighbour, so I'm going to move away anyway. But because of this story, no one will let him move into their shop anymore, and he's stuck in the place, and she's stuck living above him. Oh, Oh my God. Isn't that bad? Will you rehome, Mr. Stinky Cheese Seller? (laughs) (laughs) Um, We've got to wrap up in a sec, guys. Anything before we do? Um, St. Hildegard of Bingen, uh, who yeah. was a friend of the podcast, yeah. mystic yes. from the 12th century. She always thought that all cheese should be dried. Um, and she really liked her cheese. But she also thought that cheese was, like cheese making, was how children was made. So she wrote that at first the semen inside the woman is milky. Then it coagulates. Then it becomes flesh. And then it becomes the body. So is cheese just halfway to becoming a human? Is that what she's saying? I guess it's what she's saying. So yeah. Wow, she was a wise woman, but she did get some things wrong, didn't she, Hildegard? <laughs> Her restaurant was a disaster. <laughs> but there was a guy called Tertuion who was um, a father from the 2nd and 3rd century. He was like a priest, and he thought that the birth of Jesus was a bit like this. So Jesus had been born in a kind of cheesy way. So like away, yeah. So like the curds <laughs> away, away in a manger, <laughs> away in a manger. <laughs> so the curds like cheese. <laughs> the curds like uh, like uh, a cheese. Jesus had grown. Jesus had grown, <laughs> had grown into his shape, and then um, he kind of got kicked out of the church because of this crazy he stuff. Got kicked out of the church. <laughs> 
But, well, he went to another sect called the Montanists, and he kind of became really big in the Montanists, and they decided that as well as bread and wine and Holy Communion, you could also have a little bit of cheese with your wafer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, we need to wrap up, I'm okay. afraid. Okay, that is it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yeah, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Thank you so much, Newcastle, for being here tonight. That was absolutely awesome. Really appreciate it. We'll see you again next time. Good